Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Well, we've actually got some uh, positive stuff on the pod uh, today. Uh, we'll talk about uh, Newcastle, who are into the top four. And we'll also talk about Aston Villa, who demolished uh, Brentford over the weekend. But we will also talk about them dismissing Steven Gerrard and look at what went wrong and who might replace him. But we are going to start with a downbeat story. Leeds beaten again at the weekend. So where does that put Jesse Marsh? I'm Mark Chapman. This is the Athletic Football Podcast. Reed. That's done brilliantly. Still going. There's the goal to seal it. For William. His first Fulham goal. They're 3-1 in front now. And that might just spell the end for Jesse Marsh. We are unified here, really, um, from the board to the to the staff to the players. Um, we are hurting. I understand that that fans are not happy, and and the the ire should be directed to exactly at me. And I've got to find ways to get us better and find ways to help us get points. Let's start with Leeds then. Uh, well beaten at home by Fulham. So that's now four Premier League defeats on the spin. Our Leeds writer, Phil Hay, is with us. He didn't speak like a broken man afterwards, but he didn't half look like a broken man for for sort of the last 20 minutes of the game and then into post-match media. I'd agree with that. I noticed that at full time. I was watching him as the game finished and, and he did look... He looked fairly shell shocked, mm. I thought, and beaten was the word that, that I used at the time. He um, he went around the pitch applauding the fans, and there was some applause um, in return. There was plenty of dissent as well. At, at one point, he, he walked past the ball that was on the pitch and hoofed it towards the West Stand, which was it kind of felt like taking his anger out on whatever whatever he could find. But you're right when he spoke afterwards, he he did sound like a, a head coach who was was ploughing on and and certainly at the moment Leeds are inclined to, to let him do that um, and still hoping, still trusting that that this can work. But he's in a huge amount of trouble. I think Thursday night was the most telling moment at, at Leicester. The, the dial kind of spanned from about two to ten in the most dramatic fashion. I mean, I, I, I can't remember seeing and away end turn as suddenly as they did or as drastically as they did at Leicester. And I think, as everybody knows, when you lose that section of the crowd, it's extremely difficult to recover. And in a lot of respects, the game against Fulham, I think, went exactly as everybody's gut feeling before the game said it would. You know, Leeds starting fairly well, getting their noses in front. And then it all starting to come apart at the seams again. Uh, and now that, you know, the reaction from the home crowd is very similar to, to that of the away crowd at Leicester on Thursday. It's an extremely difficult situation for a manager to survive in. You you see them uh, on virtually a day-to-day basis. Um, you know what you know what's going on within the club. You see every 90 minutes. I feel like I've seen quite a lot of leads this season, uh, 90 minutes leads, not just highlights leads. They're nowhere near as chaotically bad as they were 
in the last days of Bielsa, are they? Because they were, I mean, they were they were shipping goals left, right and centre in those final days. The leads under Marsh appear to be more about individual errors. W- would that would that be fair? At, at both ends of the field? There's an aspect of that, without a doubt. I mean, defensively, Leeds did run into big trouble under Bielsa latterly. And I think what you would say about Marsh is that it has been less chaotic in the early part of this season, but certainly up until the last few weeks, than it was in, in the initial stint with him as head coach. You know, that that spell, even though they stayed up, it was incredibly fraught. Um, it, it was pretty toxic at times in, in the stadium. And you have to say, looking back, that, you know, he, he delivered on, on avoiding relegation. But they were extremely lucky, given the way the season had gone. You know, that, that could easily have gone against them on, on the last day. Individual errors, absolutely. There's there's no doubt that they're costing them, and, and there were plenty of those yesterday. But I think people more and more are starting to see tactical issues with this team. It, it was very noticeable to me yesterday that Fulham's confidence in playing from back to front and in working the space and, and trying to, to get around leads um, on the wings was quite in contrast to Leeds' attempts to to do much with the ball when they picked it up, particularly with with the centre-backs. It is a big struggle to play from defence to midfield and then midfield to attack. And I think that was, to go back to Bielsa briefly, that was one of the things that his team were incredibly good at, was at at building attacks, at, at building structured attacks that were kind of, you know, based on patterns of play. A lot of this feels predicated on, creating chaos and, and relying on that that chaos to throw up chances here and there, which it certainly does. You know, it's not as if Leeds don't create and it's not as if they don't have anything going forward. But it feels as if it's all a bit on a wing and a prayer far more than the, the really, really structured approach that Bielsa had. Um, and it feels less and less like it's working. But then there is that, you know, I'm not trying to defend Marsh here, I suppose, but they have had plenty of times the last two, plenty of chances the last two Sundays where... They could have they could have got level with that. I mean, they missed a penalty against Arsenal, but they had plenty of other chances against Arsenal. Actually, Bamford was through again yesterday against Fulham, and I think that would have put them two one up. I think at, at, at that stage. Yeah. And again, yeah, I'm not right. I'm not focusing specifically on Bamford, who's coming back from injury. There are various elements within a game of sliding doors moments. I would argue very much so, and, and even at Leicester. Dominated the first twenty minutes, conceded an own goal, then hit the bar, then missed a, a really good chance that they they should have buried. And you're right against Arsenal, they they couldn't really have played any better without taking something from that game. And it was missed penalty, missed missed opportunities that has definitely counted against them. I, th- I think you're definitely touching on the bigger picture at Leeds and and the frustration at the moment. I think among the crowd goes beyond just Marsh. You know, th- there was. I think a quite obvious call in the summer for another proven number nine who didn't arrive. They did sign Willie Nonto, the Italy international from from Switzerland. But Nonto hasn't played yet. Nonto is 18. He's very raw. And these are not really the circumstances in which you'd particularly be looking to somebody like that to to dig you out of trouble. They were close to Gakpo at the end as well. They did have a go at Gakpo, but they didn't get that done. They they had a look at, um, they tried hard on De Ketla, who went um, from from Bruges to, to AC Milan. Um, and I think with hindsight, you have to wonder whether they, they were shooting too high with those two. You know, I mean, it seems to me that they're out of the running now for Gakpo because he will go to a bigger club with more money who are playing at a higher level. And De Ketla equally wanted to go to AC Milan, you know, Serie A champions as opposed to, to coming to Leeds. And I think it's 
a good thing having ambition in the transfer market, but perhaps you have to have a bit of realism attached to that as well. And you know, there's a problem at left back where Furpo has just never settled, has never particularly looked good enough. And and in the absence of of Furpo or you know, in the absence of any form from him, they're playing Pascal Stroik, who's really a, a left-sided centre-back with that physique. So the squad isn't complete and the team isn't complete. And I don't think in in any sense could you say that this is a stellar lead side that, that Marsh is making a mess of. But I think the, the, the concern and, and the, the, the threat to him comes from the fact that the crowd en masse seem to be losing faith, you know, pretty dramatically. So the feeling of the lead hierarchy at the moment is what? They still have confidence in him and they still believe that, that this might work. He, he, he was a very... Um, very specific choice to replace Bielsa. Victor Alter, the director of football at Leeds, had been in contact with Marsh for a couple of years before he was actually appointed. And the reason for that was that Bielsa was always on 12-month contracts at Leeds. As much as there were periods where you couldn't see him leaving, Leeds had to kind of preempt the possibility that at some point he upsticks and, and, and left, you know, and, and overnight they, they found themselves needing a, a new head coach, having to make a decision on that front. But Alter did a, a lot of data analysis, analysed coaches across Europe and came up with the, the view that Marsh was one of the best and, and the, the person who would be ideal to move to after Bielsa. I have to say it was sold as a kind of natural transition from Bielsa, but I'm less and less seeing the similarities between the two and even the hard running, which is a kind of hallmark of Marsh's football. I don't think it sustains anywhere near as well as it did, you know, at, at the peak of, of Bielsa's performance. So, yeah, they, they would like this to work at the moment. You know, they, they seem to be standing by him, but I think they'll realise that it's going to become more and more difficult unless the results start to pick up quickly. Are they, is there also an element, whilst they want to stand by him, of, like a lot of clubs, it feels, at the moment, waiting just to get to the World Cup and then they'll take stock? Yeah, I mean, the, the chief executive, Angus Kinnear, said as much in the the. Pro, his programme notes yesterday he said you know ideally form picks up now we get to the World Cup and then we can we can have a think about how to come back in in better nick and better shape on the other side of it and this might be a season in which it's a huge blessing for Leeds to have a kind of pseudo pre-season you know a, a, a kind of um, a, an unusual pre-season that you're able to work with in the middle of the year just just when you need it I mean I guess there would be the question of how much difference replacing head coach right now would make to Liverpool away on Saturday and uh, two, you know, a few weeks down the line, they've got Tottenham away as well. Bournemouth in between that seems to me to be the sort of game that they have to be taking something from. The, the thing they have to be very careful of at the moment is that they're, they're 18th and the, the two points adrift and they can't let that get out of hand. I mean, they, they haven't played many of the top six yet and the next five games have got them playing apart from Bournemouth, Liverpool, Spurs, Manchester City and Newcastle. And granted, two of those are on the other side of the World Cup. But if there isn't very much coming back from, from those fixtures, then it does create the, the risk of you finding that the gap in front of you is much larger than you want it to be. They, they could also very easily end up in a Wolves situation of of, of actually not being able to, to get somewhere. I mean, I don't know how far... The interesting thing with, with Bielsa in his last few months was that Jesse Marsh was always talked about in the background. I'm not aware of anybody being talked in in the background and and there are all, we've already got two Premier League clubs looking for managers in, in Wolves and Villa and maybe maybe patience might might be the better way forward at the moment. Well this is the thing it, it it's that time of the season where you can quite easily get bounced into a short-term appointment or an an interim appointment and it you know the the one saving grace of this World Cup break is that that would actually allow any club to make a fairly long-term appointment in that you are essentially giving your coach 
a pre-season or a, a period of time that's as long as, as most pre-seasons. OK, a lot of clubs won't have all of the players there because many will be away at the World Cup, but it's a long time to, to work with them as opposed to parachuting somebody in and saying, look, it's Liverpool on Saturday, get on with it and, and try and make something something of it. I don't think Leeds in, in any way, if they do find themselves replacing Marsh, I don't think they, they would want to go down a short-term route or a short-term idea. And I think part of the reason for supporting him is that they, they do want to desperately avoid getting into a cycle of just changing the face in the dugout over and over and over again. You know, the, they gave Marsh a long contract in 2025 and the idea was that, that he would be here for, for most of it. You know, there was no no loss of God, no lack of confidence in him from the boardroom. They've got critical decisions to make at the moment. They have to decide what they're, they're doing with him and, and if it isn't going to be Marsh, they have to get the next call right. Phil, thank you. We should let you go off and record the Leeds podcast as well. Give that a plug, shall we? We should no, no doubt be joyous too. <laughs> You're saying you're not enjoying these? God, charming. <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Here's Almiron. He's away from Ryan Sessegnon. And Almiron's still going here. It's Miguel Almiron! It's 2-0! And he's now scored five in his last five Premier League appearances. Let's talk Newcastle uh, next on the pod. Uh, they went into the top four by beating Tottenham on Sunday. Um, the Athletics' Chris Woff is with us. You, you do positive Newcastle. Uh, George does miserable Newcastle. So so we might not ever hear from Culkin ever again. Well, fingers crossed. I mean, I do have to be honest, I've just been listening to a podcast about imposter syndrome and I do still feel that I am bringing that to this as well, <laughs> being talking about a positive upward club. So yes, but no, Col- Culkin's the mis- misery correspondent. Uh, you got the train back after the game last night. That, was, that must have been party central, that train, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the nine o'clock from uh, King's cross it was very loud i still have uh the bruno song or several bruno songs stuck in my head um ringing all through the night i couldn't get back to sleep when i got in because it was just playing over and over again in my head so i bet that was a tough shift working the uh working the food trolley and the and the uh and the buffet car on that on that i think train. that they just decided not to go into some of the carriages because it wasn't worth it so. <laughs> um do you get the sense that um those around the club are trying to play down expectations still, despite the party train. Well, Eddie Howe certainly is, although he was interesting after the game. I mean, I asked him directly about Newcastle being in the top four and, and whether that's sort of sustainable. It's not like they're three games in. This is basically a third of the way through the season. And he said, well, you know, we hope we can, but my job is to be level-headed, to to stay calm and to, to see where we can get to. But then he also said, excitingly, I don't think that, that we are anywhere near where we can be yet. I think there's so much progress still for this group of players, never mind what is to come for the future of the club. But yeah, the the the, the, the thought around Newcastle really going into the season, although they never said it publicly, was definitely comfortably top 10 rather than relegation battles, endless relegation battles as has been over the course of the last few seasons. A good cup run and hopefully maybe sneak sort of eighth position if they can. Whereas now you look at it and think, 
they have to be contenders, certainly for a European place, if not pot- potentially higher, because they, it is now sustained form. We've talked many times about how canny they were in their first transfer window with, with the players that they brought in. There is no doubt, though, that the the money that they have spent on, on the bigger players, shall we say, Botman, uh, Bruno Guimaraes, Kieran Trippier in particular, are really starting to bear fruit now. So the funding that has come in has, without a shadow of a doubt, benefited them, as you would expect. Without a doubt. I mean, Newcastle's hit rate for players so far actually is extraordinary, really, in terms of how positive the signings have been. They've made eight signings, and you can make an argument for at least six of them haven't been very successful so far. Yeah, and I'd throw Nick Pope in there uh, as well, but I didn't because they got him for for relatively peanuts, didn't they, really? I mean, that was an amazing deal. Yeah, and and, I mean, Bruno Gimaraes, they moved earlier than most clubs. I think a lot of clubs who were looking at him were thinking, we'll look at him in the summer. Newcastle moved in January and managed to get him. They tried to get Sven Botman then, couldn't, but then held off AC Milan and brought him in during the summer. And undoubtedly, the money that they have helped in, in terms of securing them. But what I think is is fascinating is that when Bruno Gimaraes sat in front of the media in early February, having just signed and Newcastle was second bottom of the Premier League, having won two games all season, he said, I've come here to make Newcastle basically call them a massive club and to, to, to try and win the Champions League. And at that point, that seemed fanciful. But suddenly, and you were thinking it's going to be at least three, four, five years before they can compete there. Suddenly, sort of eight months on, you're looking at it and thinking, maybe Bruno Gimraes and Sven Botman, who've come to play Champions League football, can do that within two or three seasons as they hope. They, they, these are the, the players they're trying to build around to do that. And they have raised everyone's level. You mentioned Kieran Trippier. He was really the sort of signing who was meant to set the tone as to what Newcastle were going to do. And he really has done that. He's been so influential behind the scenes. He really has dragged players up to his level and and raised everyone's standards across the board. And the influence that those three players you mentioned and Nick Pope as well have had on this team is just outstanding. We can see with our own eyes the the players who were already there who've who've improved uh, under Eddie Howe, you know, from Joel Linton to to Almiron, etc., how much have they been drilled on the training field defensively? Because they've got the best defence in the in in the Premier League. So how how much and who has been doing that? Do you know? Or how much is it just down to actually better players in in Trippier, Pope, Botman, etc.? I mean, Fabian Share at the moment. I know I'm going to Fabian Share looks looks magnificent at the moment alongside Botman. There's another player who's improved tremendously under this coaching staff. Yeah, and I think that that's a point that can't be understated in terms of the players who are there and how much they have improved. Miguel Almiron looks phenomenal at the moment. He's in such good form. Joe Linton has improved beyond recognition, as you've said. At least half of that team is still players who were there previously and they have massively improved. And that's partly down to those players coming and raising their levels, but also down to the coaching. In terms of the defence, I'll be honest, when Eddie Howe first came in, my reservation was at Bournemouth, his team's conceded 60 goals in all five Premier League seasons that were there. He's not the man to come in and sort out defence, which across the course of 2021 set an unwanted Premier League record for conceding 80 Premier League goals. That was that there was nobody, no team had ever done that. And yet this year, they've really restricted that. I think it's 30 goals across the calendar year, uh, 10 and 12 so far this season. And they how when he first came in last year, him and his coaching staff looked at it and decided that if Newcastle were going to survive, it had to be that they saw the defence first. And so they worked really, really hard on that. And their revival during the second half of last season was built on their defence. And they won games narrowly. They weren't the sort of pressing team they are now. They didn't dominate possession as they are trying to do now. And then over the summer, it was, we've sorted out the defence to a degree. We bring in Sven Botman, who could improve that even further, and Nick Pope. 
who's a sweeper keeper that we want and then we transform the style going forward so it, they really have worked very very hard on the training ground they've diligently drilled it and there is much about what they have to do out of possession throughout the whole team as what they are in possession and Miguel Almiron probably uh, epitomizes that more than anyone because the, the work that he does pressing and off the ball is just sensational and I think that that sets the tone for the rest of the team if they are fourth at the World Cup and then the January transfer window opens does that change their plans? I think it has the potential to. I mean, I've spoken to people in and around the club. We went to see Darren Eels, the CEO, and Dan Ashworth, the sporting director, a few weeks ago as the Northeast Media. And they suggested that really still summer windows are the ones that Newcastle are going to target. But if there is a deal which works for the club, for a player that they want, that they think is at the right price and they can do it, they will look to, to do that in January. They spent a little bit more in the summer than they really intended to when they broke the transfer record to sign Alexander Isak. So they're a little bit further on in FFP than necessarily wanted to be. But if they see a really, really good player, I know that ideally the two positions are still looking at are number six and, and, and a sort of wide forward. It was right-sided forward. I think it's changed slightly to, to sort of a wide forward in general now, given that Miguel Almiron's form. If they can do one of those two deals, I think they probably will look to do it to particularly push them into that area to try and secure that European place. Is that a six what, to, re- to release Bruno a bit more? Yeah, I think they want a bit more flexibility to be, in theory, I mean, Bruno has, has performed that role very, very well, but ideally he wants wants to be a sort of number eight in that midfield three that Newcastle play. They've got the sort of two wide number eights with which Joe Linton and Joe Willock are tending to play and Sean Longstaff very well at the moment. But that's where Bruno shone towards the end of last season. Ideally, they'd like to get him a little bit higher up the pitch or at least have that option to do that. John Joe Shelby's come back to fitness, so that releases things a little bit. But ideally, Howard does want a number six, yeah. When you talk to the um, the other athletic guys who, who cover, you know, the so-called established top six... Are they um are they shitting themselves? <laughs> Some of them are starting to, I think, and it just you get I me. Mean, you just have to listen to what the managers have been saying in in their press conferences to hear to hear them. I'll be honest, this is this is almost like an expedited process. I didn't think Newcastle would be here at this stage now, and there is still two thirds of the season left. They could well drop off a bit, but it's the fact that they've gone to spit. That what was so impressive about this was it was the first time they've gone to a sort of so-called big six team and really dominated large spells of the game and looked to impose themselves. I've seen them win at Spurs before. They won there on their first visit in 2019 when Joel Linton scored and it looked like he might actually be a centre forward and then that turned out to be a false dawn. But but th- th- this was this was different. That was a sort of smash and grab win. This was Newcastle going there and really trying to, to, to take it to Spurs and show them what they can do. They'd already gone toe-to-toe with Manchester City. They'd already gone to Anfield and, and lost uh, controversially after, after in the eighth minute of added time they'd already gone to Old Trafford a ground where they, they've only won once in 40 odd years and really had a go at Man United as well and this was a sort of statement win to show this is sort of sustained form so yes I think that there is fear behind the scenes that, that Newcastle are coming and maybe even sooner than they expected Where are the dangers where are the pitfalls? Maybe I should get Culkin on for this. Bit, but where, where are the dangers or the or the or the pitfalls? It can be seen as a, a positive in one sense at the moment that they haven't actually got two of their best attacking players, Alan Saint Maximan and Alexander Isak, fit, and they haven't over the course of the last few weeks. But injuries have affected them. They've managed to get through that to date. They've had Callum Wilson out for a spell as well. Bruno Guimaraes has missed a few games. They still have a relatively thin, really strong squad. Their, their first eleven, I think, can compete with just about anyone. I don't mean it's it, it's it's as good as some of the others. But I think you can compete. But when they have to start bringing a few players in here and there, they don't yet have that depth. And given that they've already had to to play a lot of players 
give them a significant amount of minutes up to this point, given that Sam Maximan and Isak have been injured. I do worry, can they keep up this high pressing tempo throughout the course of the season with the World Cup happening and things like that? Because they're going to lose the likes of Trippier and Pope and Bruno Gimraes there. They're not going to lose sort of 12, 15 players as some other teams will, but the, the, the key players are going to be going to the World Cup and it's just whether they can sustain this this intensity throughout the course of a season, I think is, is probably the main pitfall. Good stuff, Chris. Thank you. Cheers, guys. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athletic football with no spaces. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Done just about kept it in play, and then he's been released again by Ings. He knows Watkins is hovering, and here he is. And again, how's it not gone in? It has. Let's talk Villa with Dan Bardell, Villa fan, host of our preview show as well. Um, you had a, a roller coaster week of emotions, to to use a cliche. Yeah, funny week. Thursday was obviously 
terrible in in the away end at Fulham. Probably one of the worst performances I've ever seen from Aston Villa, and believe me, I've seen a few. And then on Sunday, completely different. One of one of the best performances I've seen from Villa uh, at Villa Park. I don't remember them ever being three 0 up after fifteen minutes in in a game. So yeah, roller coaster week, as you say. So why? Because because the pundits the pundits can all say you know look at tactics and personnel and so on and so forth. But when when you are going week in week out as you do. How how do you explain the difference between Thursday and the first forty five minutes on Sunday? I think it's a combination of things. I think sometimes when you when uh, you, you're so bad, the only way is up. Although I didn't expect such an upturn yesterday. I think Steven Gerrard, Villa had nowhere to go with him. That they had to sack him. I think it probably should have been done weeks ago. It, it was quite apparent for most of this season that Villa were going nowhere and under him, and that tactically he wasn't good enough f- for the Villa job. And I think. The players have taken a lot of heat over the last few weeks, but I've genuinely believed that Villa have the players there to be a top 10 team and maybe push towards Europe and try and win a cup. And I think at least what yesterday has done is it's shown that there are good players at Aston Villa Football Club still if they're given the right platform. And to me, quite simply, that that was what happened yesterday. Danks played a formation that the Villa fans have been calling for for months. Gerrard was so rigid with his 4-3-3, playing the two narrow 10s off the striker, but it wasn't suiting the personnel that Villa had. Aaron Danks changed to a 4-2-3-1 and Louise and Dendonka playing as defensive midfielders. And, and what they did was they gave a platform for, for the attacking players, the good attacking players that Villa have, to go out there and play. But they also protected the back four as well. And Villa haven't got their attacking players in in the game enough this season. In, I don't know how much you've, you've watched the Villa, but we didn't look as if we could score a goal. Well, do you know what, Dan? I feel, like, I feel like the conversations I've had on Villa up until Sunday were conversations that I've had pre Steven Gerrard about balance and and trying to fit these players into into something that works and 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 as you say lots of villa fans will just go well go 4-2-3-1 really yeah. and let and let Buendia in the main flourish behind the the main striker and see what happens that that seems to me where the discussion around Villa has been for, for, for pre-Steven Gerrard, to be fair to him, actually. Yeah, I think Dean Smith, towards the end of his tenure, he was struggling to get the new players in, in, in the team. And I don't. I loved Dean Smith. He did so much for, for my football team. I, I, will, I will always love Dean Smith. But when you lose five games in a row, you're going to be in trouble. And 2021 wasn't good enough for, from Dean Smith either. And by the same virtue, 2022 hasn't been good enough for Steven Gerrard. But the other thing that Danks did yesterday, yes, he played 4-2-3-1. But he played Leon Bailey on the left-hand side and Ollie Watkins on the right, which I don't think I would have ever done. I think you, any manager even would have played them on on the opposite flanks. But what that did, it just gave Villa a, a bit of, of speed on, on, on the wings, but it, it also gave them some width. And that's just what they haven't had. And that's that's the first time that Grealish three, I think, the three that were brought into play to replace Grealish in uh, Buendia, Bailey and Danny Ings have all played together and all flourish. And it's taken a coach with no managerial experience, who was the attacking coach at Villa, by the way, as well yeah. under Steven Gerrard, which I find fascinating because he's obviously identified straight away that 4-3-3 was not the right formation, which tells me he's either not been allowed a say at Villa or not felt he could say anything because he's got a tune out of the attacking players there. Villa looked so, so dangerous. Could have scored a lot more goals yesterday as well. And it was just a, a really, really good team performance. The whole team played very, very well. Was one of Gerard's biggest problems 
that he just didn't connect with the Villa fans? Towards the end, that was definitely becoming a problem. I think, obviously, Dean Smith had a great relationship with with the Villa fans and he felt like he, he was kind of the glue that brought everyone together. And the club had done a lot of work under Christian Perslow and the new ownership to get that connection back. The team obviously got promoted, they survived relegation and then they had a good stable season in the in the lockdown year as well and finished, I think it was 11th. So things were all heading in the right direction and then Grealish left and the club didn't really know what to do. The club struggled with Grealish leaving because everything had been built around him. And I think Christian Perslow wanted a, wanted a name at the club and Steven Gerrard was that name and yes, to be fair to him, He's attracted some good players to Villa that perhaps they wouldn't have been able to get get previously, but it just hasn't worked. And I felt like Steven Gerrard, as time went on, he got further away from himself as well. He wasn't the, the character that I thought he was. He wasn't the passionate manager on the sideline that I saw in the first five or six games when he came in. And it just felt the more Steven Gerrard was allowed to do at Villa in terms of bringing in his own coaching staff and bringing in his own players, the worse Villa got and almost got away from themselves a little bit, if that makes sense. Did the captaincy issue overshadow an awful lot of, of this season? Because it, it, but it because it also then affected selection, didn't it? I mean, Villa fans would, would tell me, you know, McGinn wasn't having a great season. But if you then hand the captaincy to him in such a public manner, in many ways, taking it off one player and giving it to another, you, you're not going to really drop him, are you? Ultimately, I do think that's probably what's finished Steven Gerrard because it was such a... It was a bizarre decision and it was a bizarre way of doing things to leave it until a couple of days before the season started to announce that you're making this big change to the captaincy and you're involving probably the two biggest characters in the Villa dressing room because they're the, they're the two longest serving players there in John McGinn and, and Tyro Mings. And he's almost been forced to backtrack with Tyro Mings as well. Now, any Villa fan will tell you whether they rate Tyro Mings or, or not it's clear that he's the biggest leader at the football club. And a lot of the reasons that were cited against Tyro Mings for losing the captaincy probably could have been labelled at, at McGinn as well in regards to form and, and, and needing to get himself back on track. And all that did was create extra pressure on, on John McGinn. I think he's been subbed off six times this season. He's, he's really struggled, but I genuinely do think that's down to the system that, that Villa have been playing. And in fairness to Gerard Mings, his form did, did improve. I know he made a mistake against Chelsea the other week, but other than that, he's been very, very good for, for Villa this season. But it just created a, a not useful dialogue on the eve of the season. And if you're going to make a decision like that, you've got to go then go and back it up on the pitch. And Villa were awful on that first day against Bournemouth. Got off to a, a terrible start. The team looked lopsided. The selection was strange. Mings was obviously sat on the bench. And then later on, they tried to play off that, that he'd had an injury, which I'm, I'm not sure I'm really buying that excuse at all. And it annoyed the fans and it just got the season off to a terrible start that I don't think Steven Gerrard's ever recovered from. And I don't think John McGinn's ever recovered from either. We started the pod talking uh, uh, about Leeds and, and then showing patience a little bit with, with Jesse Marsh and whether that is a managerial market that is actually quite difficult to get hold of someone at the moment. I suppose it all yeah. depends who you're targeting and, and Wolves are a prime example of getting themselves in a right mess at the moment. Are Villa another side that even though they've made the decision to get rid of Gerard, could wait till the World Cup and then and then see who's available? Before yesterday, I would have said we need to get someone in quick because otherwise we're going to end up in a relegation dogfight yesterday. But I think what yesterday at least did, it showed that Villa have got good players. It showed that Villa are probably better than they've been showing so far this season and that if they're given the correct platform and given coherent tactics, they can go out and put on a display and, and, and beat teams in, in the Premier League. I think that's what yesterday showed. I think in defensive leads, I would say that I think at least 
I've seen some kind of playing style from Jesse Marsh and can see what he was trying to implement. Whereas with Steven Gerrard, I just didn't have a clue what he was trying trying to do with, with Villa. Probably the same with, with Wolves, but. Wolves have been looking for a manager for a few weeks now and they're struggling to get one in. They, they've decided to wait till 2023 and I think that's going to cost them, as you saw yesterday. They got taken apart by Leicester and they're going to be in for a, a long, hard season. Now, I think at least Villa have got in Aaron Danks now, someone who's shown that he can do more than steady the ship. That was that was a great performance and a, and a great result from Villa yesterday. But I just don't know where they go with, with manager. I don't know whether it's better to, to wait, but... I think any manager that maybe was dubious about this Villa squad and didn't want to take it, didn't want to be involved in a relegation battle, I think maybe yesterday will have just helped a little bit. Let's do the whole lumping lumping every fan together and, and assuming they all have the same opinion. Who do they want? Who do you want? Most Villa fans would say Pochettino. Now, I'm aware that that's incredibly ambitious and probably unlikely to happen. But if Poch wants to get back into football and wants to get back into the Premier League, I'm struggling to see where he goes. At the moment, none of those top six jobs are coming to us. I say that actually, Conte obviously had a bad day yesterday. It doesn't look like any of the top six jobs are coming up anytime soon. He perhaps would have had one eye on on Newcastle. Eddie Howe is doing a stupendous job at, at Newcastle. He deserves so much credit. And that's the other thing, you know, going off on a bit of a tangent. Eddie Howe and Stephen Gerrard took over at pretty much the same time. Look at the improvement in Newcastle, but look at the improvement in players that were already there. At Newcastle players who we've perhaps written off in the past and thought they were, they were no good. Joel Linton, look at the improvement and, and of those players. I saw more, more improvement in one game yesterday in the Villa players under Aaron Danks than I did across an entire year with, with Steven Gerrard. So I've got away completely from, from what you asked me. But yeah, Pochettino <laughs> would, would be the one that, that I would like. But I'd, I get that that's going to be difficult to pull off. But you've, you've got to be ambitious. Villa are, are a huge club and the infrastructure is there at Villa. The training ground is one of the best in the country. When it's rocking, Villa Park's an excellent place to play. The owners are ambitious. The owners have spent a lot of money. and think the owners want a big name? If they've already demonstrated that with with the Gerrard appointment, I think there's a difference between getting a big name. Stephen Gerrard's a big name because of what he'd done as a player rather than what he'd done as a manager. I think if Villa could get someone like Pochettino in, it would it would revitalise the football club. He'd get a lot of backing. He'd be given almost free reign to do what he what he wanted at the football club. Because I think managers that have been at Villa, Dean Smith and and uh, Stephen Gerrard, I don't think either of them would complain about the backing they've had. No. They've, they've they've been allowed to do do what they like and try and shape a, fo- a football club. Unfortunately, Gerrard, it has worked out the Pochettino would this fan base would go absolutely mad for him thank you Dan that's it thanks for listening don't forget if you haven't already you can subscribe to The Athletic for just a pound for the first six months by going to theathletic.com slash football pod I'm back tomorrow The Athletic